Welcome to Off-Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is visual artist Donna Alina Rabchakova. Donna Alina is an artist and art therapist who has dedicated her life to the healing capacities of art. After getting a degree in art therapy from Columbus College of Art and Design and a master's in art education from Ohio State, she spent 12 years working in adolescent psychology at Riverside Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, with a focus on post-traumatic stress disorder, trauma, and loss. She then moved to the Red Lake Nation Reservation on Ojibwe lands in Minnesota, where she initially served as a triage therapist following a national tragedy where 10 lives were lost in a shooting at Red Lake High School. She learned the Ojibwe language and stayed on for seven years before returning to Ohio, where she cared for her terminally ill parents and worked as a holistic therapist. She has also taught art at Ohio State University, Columbus College of Art and Design, and the Center for Sacred Studies in Guerneville, California. In 2010, Donna Alina purchased her great-grandfather's home in Giglose, Slovakia, 27 miles from the Ukrainian border, fulfilling a lifelong dream of returning to live in her ancestral village. She had two exhibits of her paintings there in 2021 called Cierna Madonna, Black Madonna, and The Lost Blue Horses of Winter Solstice. She returned to the U.S. in 2022 to complete paperwork, but ended up staying longer than planned as the Russian invasion of Ukraine made it unsafe for her to return to Slovakia. She has since completed a residency in northern Minnesota where she debuted her Ukrainian and Slovakian collections. She's now gearing up to return to the Red Lake Nation where she will once again work with indigenous youth in middle and high school. For the past two years, I've had the privilege of working with Donna Alina in my writing workshops. It's been a gift to witness her journey, and in the process, I've come to know her paintings, which are dreamlike, vivid, and profoundly moving, often managing to capture joy, sorrow, and hope within a single canvas. It's my pleasure to welcome her today. Donna Alina, welcome to Off Leash Arts. Oh, it's it's so wonderful to be here, Tanya. I'm so, so happy and it's wonderful that we're collaborating in this way. I'm honored. Thank you. Well, thank you. So I understand you've wanted to be an artist since kindergarten. What are some of your earliest memories of making art? Well, I went to a traditional Catholic school in the beginning of my education. And I remember I was in kindergarten class. And my mother started us early under the rules that at the time that we lived in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, depending on when your birthday fell, I started when I was four. I remember this sister was in her nun's outfit, you know, the habit and all that. We were having art class and I was at the easel and she asked us to paint a cow. And in my own interpretation, my cow was purple. And it was purple spotted. And I remember the one thing that stood out for me, sadly, I remember, I don't remember this sister's name, was that she did not chastise me. She didn't say that my cow needed to be black or white. And she just thought it was fabulous just the way it was. And I really think the opinion of formative teachers is so important. Because that memory stands out so clear in my mind. And, 
Do you know that in middle school and in high school, I had nothing but really great art teachers that allowed me to develop my own style and didn't mold me into what they were. Mm. So this was a very important part of my journey and continues so today. Oh, that's lovely. Do you remember what it felt like when you were a young child making art? Like what kind of a an inner state did that produce in you? Well, I think that it's the not fully developed wild woman. So it's the state of subconsciousness, playfulness, spontaneity, non-judgment. I remember my mother saying to me that she could give me anything, any kind of art supply, chalk, crayons, paper, spirograph at the time when spirograph was out. And she said, I never had to worry about you. You could always entertain yourself. Like I could always go get lost in that creative process. So yeah, it's it's just the most wonderful piece and spontaneity. And again, I think even at this age, you know, 60 some years later, I'm still engaging that stage. Mm, I love that. So I know you like to paint every day. What is your process like as an artist? Are there particular rituals that help you get into the mental space to create? Well, I love to meditate. So I think the first thing in the morning is I do a reflection of my dreams. And a big component of my work is my dream life. So I take time to sit with the images and the symbols and how that whole world comes to me. And it's indescribable because it's not physical plane. It feels like I'm, it's a multidimensional experience. So I reflect, I journal if I need to, I use mala beads, I pray, I spend time thinking, but then I let it go. I don't hold on to it. I do a non-attachment approach because I see the canvas as really an alchemical process. And so I allow the magic just to happen. So I know what I dreamt. I know what I'm feeling, maybe not fully. I love to start with the process. It's quite organic. I build the canvas by mixing colors. And it was the one thing I, again, how a formative teacher can change your life. My high school art teacher always loved how I used color. And she said, this is, this is your strength. This is going to get you places. And she predicted when I was young that I would be showing my art and kind of living the life I'm living. So I build layers and layers of colors. I do a molding paste. Uh, I like to use earth-based products, so maybe I'll use molding paste mixed with herbs, mixed with oils, mixed with uh, rose water, mixed with rainwater, mixed with spices, mixed with ground coffee. Uh, I don't know, just to get this kind of bumpy textural surface. And so when you look at my art, it, it is sculptural too. It has that sensibility to it. The beginning is the building of the canvas. It's the prep work. It's sort of like preparing for the baby, you know, get the nursery ready. And so I'm building this safe place for it to land. When the molding paste sets, I go back into it. And 
I just start to see shapes. Like all of a sudden I might see a horse or I might see a face or I might see a raven or I might see a bodhisattva. I might see an indigenous person. And so I don't plan that fully out either. I just let it map it out for me. And for lack of a better word, I'm going to use divinity or creatress or some source bigger than me. I always feel like it might be my ancestors or other realmly that is guiding me to create these kind of ethereal, dreamy colorscapes. Mm. What is molding paste? Molding paste is kind of, if you think of paste, like when we were kids, it's thicker and it almost seems like it's a spackling of sorts, but it's not. And there's really top-notch molding paste that you can buy. Like, for example, golden supplies are like top-notch. But I've learned to make a lot organically just on my own. I create my own molding paste because what I'm bringing into my art is I'm teaching youth today and my audience that I don't need high premium supplies, that the earth provides what I need. And so if I can figure out a combination that's non-toxic and feels like it could live on after I'm gone, I try to build from that. I learned some of this methodology from one of my teachers. Her name is Kathleen Brigidina. She lives in Chicago, and she developed a lot of the earth pigments. And she introduced me to the concept, and then I just have kind of built on from that to my own methodology. And the one thing that I really love integrating that people probably don't know in my paintings is is rose water. I, I, I use a lot of rose water. My grandmother loved roses, so I like to have that scent in my paintings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you were naming rose water and spices and coffee, I was thinking, oh, I bet these smell good. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe short-lived smell good, mm-hmm. but I just want to teach young people today of all economic backgrounds. Yes, it's nice to have, let's go top of the line, your track, golden, Blick supplies, but Again, you can build a lot of it from just what's around you. So when you're talking about building the canvas with the paste, that's just a sort of intuitive process of of spreading the paste and creating a texture, and then the texture Mm -hmm. gives rise to the image? Yeah, absolutely intuitive. So if my intuition says use a spackling knife, I'll use it. If my intuition says use your fingers, And just because I'm looking at a piece right now and it's just you can kind of see where I took my fingers and I went down the the large wood painting. So it kind of looks like I had been dragging my hand all the way through the painting. It takes a process where you have to literally throw your mind out the window. (laughs) You have to just trust that this process will guide you to what needs to be expressed, much like what you teach in your classes. You have us kind of, you know, let's not edit, let's just free flow, free association. And then these beautiful writings come from all of us in the classroom. It's really based on that sort of subconscious process. Yeah, that's lovely. I think a lot of us would like to throw our thinking minds out the window a lot of the time, you know, and see 
see what our hearts bring forward when we can get rid of those voices that are yammering away about what we should do and what's good and what isn't good. And um, Right. And it's liberating. You mentioned your grandmother, and I know that that was an important relationship. Can you talk a bit about her influence on your approach to art and life? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, her name was Anna May. And Anna May was Slovakian. Uh, she was born in America. My paternal grandmother, Anna, was born in Sydney, near Gigolose, where I live. But Anna May was this amazing woman who was feisty. She was four foot eleven, very bosomy, and always had apron on and her rosary in her pocket and a dollar pinned to her bra in case somebody was in need. And she was a nurse. She was a charge nurse. She went to school, put herself through school when her father forbid her to study nursing because she would be exposed to the nude body. And he didn't think that was proper. But she went and she went on for her master's and became a charge nurse and was an oncology and a gynecology nurse. Uh, Long story short, she was always the person that believed in my art. She always pursued me to go that pathway. This is very pinnacle in an artist's life to have that one person who totally believes in you no matter what, because you're going to get a lot of like, how will you make a living, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to have a lot of ups and downs in the artist's journey. So she believed in me. She was very holistic. So she knew a lot of the old Slovak methodologies of herbs and medicines. And actually, some of that I put in my art, like things she would teach me about steaming herbs that you can breathe. And maybe I will mix that with paint, you know, like how would she what we would do, like if we had a cold or something, but she taught me the divine feminine too. her version of God was really a mother God, she just kind of saw God as her mother. So I had this amazing matriarchal grandmother, strong, fierce, a healer. People would gravitate to her because she knew all these medicines in the very multi-ethnic Eastern European neighborhood in Pittsburgh. And oh my God, she's every ounce of me. Like I am her and she is me. I just feel it. She's been gone 26 years and still she's just a part of my life every day. She's always with me. It seems that divine feminine comes through in your work a lot. You've done Mary, but also across other, other traditions, like in, you have Buddhas, but also feminine looking bodhisattvas. So I I really Mm -hmm. feel that coming through you. Mm -hmm. I do like the old bohemian gypsy women uh, because of the gypsies in Czech Republic and Slovakia. I do these uh, crone-like images. I do goddess-like images. Yeah, it's just my whole matriarchal line is gone. So that was one reason I wanted to go back to Slovakia because I do have some matriarchal line left there that are my cousins. And that was very important to me. Let's talk a bit about your move back to Slovakia. Okay, let's. I know you said that had been a lifelong dream. Yeah, it really had. I used, I, when I was growing up, I remember this memory, and I wrote about it in your class, actually. We were sitting under the peach tree, 
at my aunt's house, my dad's sister, she was born in Czechoslovakia. She left when she was 16. And we were eating these big, juicy peaches, my mother, my father, my uncle, my aunt, and I, and I'm the only survivor of this memory. And my aunt brought out a map. And I remember she laid it out and it was all in Slovak. And she said, this is our village. And I remember thinking at a young age, oh my God. So I told my aunt, take me there. Oh, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Well, it was still communist. The Velvet Revolution didn't happen until 1989. And I begged my father to take me, but nobody would take me. So yeah, I, and then I was raised in a multi-language family, but they stopped with the kids. So it was only like the grandparents spoke it and the parents. Then it got to us kids and it's like, these are going to be American kids on second generation. Some of my cousins are first generation in America. So they stopped with us and I used to beg them to teach me. So I would just get snippets of words, but I was never taught the language. I'm learning it now and I, I love it. I always wanted to go to Slovakia. I always did. Oh, I would beg all the time. And so you moved there in 2020, okay. very shortly before the pandemic. And how did you feel that being there impacted your work as an artist? Oh my God, it was life-changing. It was an absolute shift. Because you see, I'm painting in the house that my great-grandfather lived in, uh, that my great-aunt lived in, and I know the stories. I know who they are now. I know where they're buried, and I visit them regularly, and I tend to their cemetery plot. I even make paintings for them and bring paintings and put them in the cemetery, and I'm home there. I am absolutely, completely, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Tanya, but I remember different times in my memories there, I would just go on my knees, like literally to my knees, and like go to the ground and just the ground felt familiar. The smells felt familiar. The It's like I'm never alone. I feel they're always with me. I, I In the mountains, in a little grotto somewhere, in the cemetery, in my apple orchard, in my kitchen, in my living room. And then my art started changing. People noticed it. They're like, wow, your art's really changing. Like there's something that's shifted. And I'm like, yeah, it was being there. It just shifted immensely. So you felt like the presence of your ancestors was moving through you in some way. Yeah, it makes me want to cry because I feel it so, so strongly. Like they're there. I can totally feel it. And I'm talking about something so deep. I can't even articulate it or put it in words. It's otherworldly, otherworldly. And you know, where I live, they feel that way too. The dead are every bit as important as the living. And you honor them. You put a plate at the table. Holidays, there's always a plate at the table. There's always extra food for the ancestors. There's always visiting the cemetery, making sure that they know they're kind of part of, let's just say, for example, it's um, Christmas. So something we might do is all go to the cemetery make sure all the flowers are there, make sure we acknowledge them, then we'll go home and eat for days. But it's like, and maybe we'll go back a few more times. It's like, 
yeah, we're all together, but you know, so is uh, great aunt Maria. So is, you know, my great grandfather, Michael, you know, on and on the whole list. It's like, they're at the table with us and mm -hmm. oh my God, it's just so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I was following you on Facebook during that time and seeing how you were painting all over the walls of the house. You were transforming yes, yes. the house into a mural. I have. I've What I've done is that's my legacy. It will stay in my family. So in my will, it's written that that house can never be sold. And so I've painted murals from one end to the other. My dream would be that people would gather there for coffee and tea and enjoy the art. And it would always be an abode for my family as the generations go on. This will be our family place. I'm 60, a little over 60. So I'm planning for the next stages. You know, the next stages is what am I leaving behind? And I'm going to leave a lot of my art there. My family knows, everybody knows. So this is what I'm doing. After Russia invaded Ukraine and you were here, you made a stunning series of paintings you called Guardians of the Border. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me about the process of creating those paintings and what they meant to you? Well, I, you know, I've been a therapist for over 30 years and working with PTSD youth. So on Indian reservations and non-reservations such as psychiatric hospitals hospice. Those are some of the settings I've worked in. And so my expertise is PTSD. And living so close to the border, I was so, oh, I don't know what the word would be, overwhelmed with the feeling that 10 million Ukrainians, they were estimating in the NATO countries, would be displaced. And I thought, oh my God, where are these people going to go? Where will they have homes? How will they get food? How will they walk it? You know, so I began to create, well, let's put it this way. The canvas started to create, and I just showed up, these guardians. So I was seeing there were all these beautiful beings on the borders. And when I say borders, I'm from Slovakia and I'm below Poland. So I think in my mind's eye, I was thinking Northeast Slovakia on up into Poland, near Krakow and above. And I thought, I'm going to create a sequence of paintings where all these guardians are waiting for them. And they've been waiting for them all along. They're just going to welcome them. So it's more the unseen world. And so these were blue horses. And these were my ancestors, they were women that had great big flower crowns on their heads, great big Ukrainian flower crowns. They were the bubas, you know, the babkas, the grandmothers. They were sometimes little angels, little young child angels. Sometimes it was um, deer. So it created this mythology or story that we're never alone. There's always the unseen world. I remember an elder told me on the reservation once that the spirit world is basically as close to your face as a tip of a leaf. So imagine having your a leaf in your hand and you were holding it and the spirit world is that close. It's just we can't see it, you know, for whatever reason in these earth suits, we don't see the whole picture. So I just thought these people are traumatized. Let's create 
a beautiful story that there's all these ones that are waiting for them in the unseen world and helping them cross the border and to have the strength to cross the border and to find shelter and to find home and not lose hope. So this became the Ukrainian and Slovakian collection. Mm. I probably should have added Poland too, because I was thinking when I was doing it about Poland a lot too, because Poland in the NATO countries has taken in the most Ukrainian refugees at this point. Okay, so they're the unseen forces on the border that are waiting to welcome them. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Now, you have a long relationship as well with the Ojibwe people and culture. How did that begin? Well, that's a magical story. And it was a a story I wrote in one of your classes, actually. It was an ordinary gray day in Ohio. And I was reading the New York Times in a loft that I shared with my person at that time. His name was Blair. And we had a cat named Lily. And Lily was sprawled out all over the New York Times. And all over the New York Times was this article about the shooting that happened the day before. So the shooting happened March 27th, 2005. And I had a very visceral experience. It was like I looked at those pictures. And I know it sounds strange, Tanya, but it's like I knew those people. I absolutely knew them. It felt familiar. And I thought, well, strange. But I noted it and I didn't dismiss it. And then in an intuitive moment, I thought, oh, my God, am I called to be up there? Like, what's what's happening here? So I followed the story very, very carefully because it was a sovereign nation and 10 lives were taken and the the reservation shut down. It was a very northern part way up near Winnipeg and they didn't want the press in. And because they're sovereign, they kicked everybody out. Didn't matter if you were from the New York Times or who you were, you weren't allowed. They closed the border into the reservation. But nonetheless, I have a lot of tenacity and passion. I called the school course nobody was answering this shooting had happened and it was chaos and mimicked a lot of what happened at Columbine so there were a lot of similarities and I finally got a hold of someone in Ramona Gaylart she was the principal up in Panema the most northern part of the reservation and she led me to all these resources of who to contact and I just call everybody everyone who's on that list and two people took my call Michael Schlemper, who's one of my best friends, he was the art teacher at the time at the high school. The shooting happened right outside of his classroom. And number two was Orrin Bolio. Orrin Bolio was a tribal elder of behavioral health. And they were looking to put a team together of people who had background in PTSD with youth from Canada and uh, the United States. So they were doing a nationwide search. And I called them in the midst of all their planning of this. And the call goes through and it's this great big conference room and he puts me on speakerphone. (laughs) I had no idea what was happening. I thought I was on a reality show or something because there were all these people here and they were like quizzing me on all this stuff. And then they were interested in meeting me. So I flew up there to interview for the position and they offered it to me and I told them I wouldn't uh, take it unless I could live on the reservation. And this is a sovereign nation that follows blood quantum. And um, if you look at me, I'm 
definitely Slavic. I look very Slovakian. So it had to go to tribal council. The tribe had to vote whether I could live up there and they passed that I could. So I took a place unbeknownst. I didn't know where I was living on the reservation, what the house looked like or the apartment end up being an apartment. And it was the best decision ever. Oh my God. I was so in love. I just, it was like Slovakia. I landed and do you know, I was home. Every bit of that place felt like home. I loved my years there. Fabulous. And did your partner come with you? Eventually. He um, is blonde haired, blue eyed, very fair, or was. He's deceased now. And there's just, you know, you have to build trust and relations. So I built trust and relations first before he came. So I did everything what I know in Indigenous studies the most proper way that I could do it, learning the culture, learning the language, learning the spirituality, building my own assessments of how I approached art with um, Ojibwe kids. And um, I just had to change my whole way. I was like living in a, it's kind of like a village outside of America. It was just such a sort of myopic world, but it was, oh, it was beautiful. I loved it. So you were an art therapist with a focus on loss and trauma, and then you had your own period of tremendous loss with the loss of your parents and the loss of your beloved partner. Would you like to talk about how art helped you through your own trauma? Yeah. Um, in the span of like two years, I lost my mother, my father, Blair. I lost my two dogs that we had together. Lost who I was in the world. I lost my sail. I didn't know where I was headed. I didn't have to stay in Ohio. And then, then I started thinking, oh, I'll just go to Slovakia. You know, this is what I've always wanted to do. So some of that dreaming started happening. I am really, really glad as a, as, as a woman and a therapist that I had a great analyst in my life. She's a psychoanalyst. Her name is Ellen. And she's Jungian, so she trained in Zurich. And she worked with me when I was a young woman. When you become a therapist, you have to go through therapy. And she was my therapist in my 20s when I was going to be an art therapist with a psychoanalytic PTSD background. And then we remet again. Here it's like 35 years later. And she's retired, but she takes me on. And I did sort of, you know, I worked with her and I did this uh, really intensive, intensive, deep study of art. I went back to school five years ago and started painting. So I've been taking painting classes for five years and I've been taking writing classes with you for two years. And it is hard work. Grief is the hardest, most painful most gut-wrenching work you'll ever do. But like my patients and my clients, my art was my healer. It was my medicine. It was my passion. It got me out of bed. Like if I could get out of bed and paint and I could end the day with paint and my dog Romeo near me, I just knew I could get through anything. And I thought about patients a lot because, you know, here I have this field that I've studied and here I'm like experiencing PTSD myself. So yeah, it was art. Art got me out of bed. Art gets me everywhere. Art is everything to me. That's my healer. And I see it with my patients and clients. I've seen it over the most hideous, 
worst awful things you can you can't even imagine I've seen art just be such a powerful tool Mm, yeah in one of your interviews I think you talked about transforming sorrow and loss into the paradox of beauty yeah yeah that's my goal Mm -hmm. my goal is when you walk away from my paintings You might feel a little discomfort because I'm confronting some serious issues, but you're going to look at it and you're going to think, wow, that is really beautiful. I like the way she used colors. I like how she put all that together. But then they read what it's about and they're like, whew, that's heavy. Yeah, well, welcome to the planet in 2022. It's it's heavy. I mean, we are living in... You know, I I paint about the environment, I paint about floods, I paint about fires, I paint about refugees, I paint about the war, I paint about guardians that are with us. I mean, it's real and it's raw, but I can guarantee you'll feel some sense of hope or beauty in a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to leave you with. Sorrow and beauty are on a teeter-totter. They are the paradox. And so I'm trying to find that in my paintings. So you said five years ago you took a painting class, but you were were you already painting before that or were you doing different forms? Not not as seriously. Like I, I was always doing art because as an art therapist, part of what I do is paint with my patients and clients. So I was always painting all day long. I mean, I would paint with them because I felt like I'm asking them to trust me and share their story. And of course, it wasn't about my story. I would just paint whatever, you know, but be participatory in the process. Like I'm risking a little here. This is the way I was trained clinically. Now, there are some clinical art therapists that never paint with their clients. I'm not one of those. My training at Ohio State University was participatory. And I like that process because... You know, you're not staring at them as they create. They can be in their own element. I can be in my own. And I can keep building a safe environment by doing that. Did I answer the question? Yeah, yeah. But five years ago, you went more, you decided to take a class and go deeper into your own. Oh, God, it was life changing. My first class I took with a woman named Marie, who's based in New Mexico. And it was on horse medicine. And wow, was that life changing. It was called horse medicine. And I just, then I took so many other courses with some great teachers. Specific to painting horses? Yeah. But I wanted to paint them in my own mythological way. I didn't care that they were technologically precise. I wanted to do it in a more dreamy way. I wanted to do it in my own expression, how I was seeing it in my head. And did you choose that course because you had been visited already by horses in your dreams? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a circle of really great artist friends, and some of them are teachers in that circle. And I've studied with several of them in that group now. And they've been amazing. They've been from like Israel, California, New Mexico, just all over. Wonderful. Chicago. Mm. it's been life and just like your classes they've been life-changing and that helped me in my healing process oh thank you so how do you view the role of art at artists in our world today in 2022 I think that we are like respirators 
We are vital. We are the breath of holding all of the mythologies and the stories and the events. We are creating our own language where we voice it through poetry or writing or dance or movement, painting, sculpture, so many expressions. And we're necessary. I think if we lose our artists in this time period of what we're living in right now, we're going to lose our breath. The earth is, we think we can't breathe because of the environmental crisis. Well, yeah, we can't because we know the facts and we know where we're headed, but we can't breathe without artists. And we need in this time period where the arts and the musics and the theater and all that's being cut out of curriculum was a big reason why the teachers striked here in Columbus, Ohio, because all that's been taken away. And they are fighting for the students to have a good, rounded education. If we lose this, then we're going to lose so many stories. We're going to lose wonderful playwrights. We're going to lose wonderful painters. We're going to lose wonderful sculptors. We're the lifeline. And we need to start doing like we used to in days long ago, where they were held in high esteem in a village. I feel that in Slovakia. I'm honored and people are just awed by what I'm doing. But I live in a really small village. You know, here I live in a condominium in Ohio heading to Minnesota. And I have hundreds of paintings here. And I'm not sure anybody knows what I'm doing in a condominium neighborhood. You know, it's just like Mm. a maze of people living in and out of these shelters. So we need communities to embrace the artist. And I don't mean that from a place of ego. I'm saying this out of necessity. I'm saying this is how we heal PTSD and trauma and we break intergenerational traumas. We keep the story keepers and the arts going. Yeah, Mm, absolutely. Well, I know you are about to return to Red Lake Nation. What Mm -hmm. is your vision going forward? Are you planning to stay there for a while and then return to Slovakia or is that up in the air. Well, you know, I'm at that age where like, do I want to retire in my 60s or do I want to keep working? And I live in a community where elders are respected. Uh, There's the one teacher that I work with. Her name is Patty. I will be working with. She's 80. I'm telling you, she could run down that hall faster than you and I. She's just a perky, full of life teacher and she loves teaching. So I live in a community where there's no mandatory age of retirement. So what I'm going to do is be quite Buddhist about it. I'm going to just be in the present moment. I'm applying for grants in Minnesota to keep showing my art. I'll just feel through the process. I will trust. And I know I have my house in Slovakia, so I can return there one day, or I can return there in doses which might make it easier because I won't need a visa. That's what got me all messed up about my paperwork was my visa and some of my paperwork. So I see life now leaving the 50s into the 60s. This is strange to say because I've never really articulated this, but I think I'm really ready to live in the present moment. You know, sometimes when we're younger, we're just doing and doing and trying to just make it, like pay that bill and prove ourselves. I have nothing to prove nothing. I have nothing to achieve, nothing. I mean, icing is, I'm a therapist and I live on a reservation and I'm 
an artist, you know? So I think it's about the present moment. So I can't fully answer that question. That's a beautiful answer. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm kind of looking at it in all aspects of my life, just mm-hmm. where I live, relationships, everything. Just I remain open to the process. I think if we remain open to the process as artists and individuals, anything's possible. Well, thank you so much, Alina. This has been really lovely to get to talk to you today. Thank you, Tanya. It was wonderful, wonderful spending the afternoon with you. And thank you for listening to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Off Leash Arts theme music is composed by Asher Whitkin, who also provided editorial assistance on this episode. Join me next time when I'll be talking with author and columnist Steve Phillips about his forthcoming book, How We Win the Civil War. Until then, take good care and stay off leash.